Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. Today's message um, is the last message in the series of what we've been looking at so far as we've been going through the history of the churches. We have come to understand and to see um, that it is applied to the history of the Christian church from its beginning all the way through to its end. And we've looked at churches that were good, we've looked at churches that were all right, we've had looked at churches that weren't so good, um, but the beautiful message that we've seen out of all of it, it doesn't matter what the condition of the church is, Jesus still has a hope and he still has a solution for that church. We've been to Ephesus, which was the loveless church. We then went to Smyrna, which was the persecuted church. We then went to Pergamos, which was the compromising church. To Thyatira, which was the corrupt church. Last week we looked at Sardis, which was the dead church, and Philadelphia, which was the faithful church. But today we've come to the last out of all those churches, and it's Laodicea, which is the lukewarm church. Kids, we've come to Laodicea, which is the lukewarm church. I won't repeat that anymore. If you've missed it, you've missed it. Um, so I guess as we, as we have come to know the churches represent a particular phase in church history, we come down to the last one and we can identify that the church that is around just before Jesus' soon return is a church that's not so good. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, yeah, you know, the remnant in Bible prophecy, you know, advancing with the truth and the message of God. Yeah, but just remember that we're Laodicea. And I will identify, and we should all identify, not with the successes or the victories, but rather we should identify with our failures because the failures need to be improved upon. And there is hope for the church that is lukewarm. Just as there is hope for the dead church, and just as there is hope for the corrupt church, and just as there is hope for the loveless church, there is a solution embodied in the person of Jesus for each and every one of those churches. But I want to tell you this morning that this message is not a comfortable message, nor should it be comfortable. Because the way in which Jesus frames it, the words I've read in Scripture, the way in which Jesus frames it, it's not meant to be comfortable. And I think sometimes we need to be stirred and we need to be awakened. We need to be challenged because we need to change. It's going to be a difficult message for me to give because of that. Um, So the church of Laodicea is the church for today. When you go to Laodicea, the ancient ruins of Laodicea that was there, you can see the ornate marble um, columns that are still there. It was a rich and influential city. In the ancient world, it was the financial center of the world. Um, just the giraffe looked after the financial, the banking and the finances. Laodicea was a financial center for the world. It was rich. It was increased with goods. But it wasn't just rich. It wasn't just prosperous. It also was um, invested in trade. And something that they traded and they manufactured and they traded and they sent around the then known world was clothing, fine clothing, black clothing, was the giraffe, no, not giraffe, the zebra, black clothing. They were sufficient, they could supply the needs, they could build these ornate temples and public meeting places. They just had the money and they could do that which they wanted. But it wasn't just finances and it wasn't just trade that they were heavily invested in, it was also the medical world. There was a thing in Laodicea and it was called 
um, eye salve. And what they would do, they specialized particularly in treating eye diseases. So people would travel far and wide to come to Laodicea so they could get this precious ointment applied to their eyes. So you can see here the, the marble. You know, it's, it's so beautiful. It's so engraved and craft, crafted because they had money and many resources. And here you see the pipes. Now, something there that the Carol was sharing was the lukewarm water. Now, there was one problem that Laodicea had. And the problem was that they were living in an area where they didn't have a natural water supply. So they had to source water from a neighboring town. But the thing with the neighboring town was that the water which came up was from a hot spring. That so was boiling hot, bubbling as it came to the surface. It then entered these pipes and traveled many kilometers down to Laodicea. And by the time it got to Laodicea, guess what happened to the water? It cooled down and became lukewarm. So Laodicea was an interesting city. It was a prosperous city. It was a financially stable city. It was a secure city. You, if you had health problems, you would go to Laodicea and you would get healed. You would get fixed. In 60 AD, there was an earthquake that hit Laodicea and it devastated the, the city. And they were so rich and they were so well resourced that when the imperial support came to them by the Caesars, by Nero, Laodicea said, no, we don't need your money. We're going to do it ourselves. I mean, so they they denied a handout because they were so rich. You can start to get a picture of this. It is apt that Jesus identifies the church just before he comes as Laodicea. And that's a challenge for all of us in our individual situations and circumstances. It is so easy. It is so easy for us to point fingers at everybody else and think that they have a problem when the fingers are all pointing straight back at us. I mean, we can come to church today and we can think, you know, we've got truth. We've got understanding. We know where we are in the prophetic scheme of things. We have security in these things. And not just in the church, but you look at the world itself. I mean, prosperity is intoxicating, is it? I mean, we have security. We came here in cars today. We have homes in which we sleep in. We want to get some food. We go down to the store. It's all there. And what happens is a society or a world that is dependent on all these things that are so available becomes very, very self-sufficient. It becomes very, very intoxicated to to its own problems. And it thinks that it needs nothing. It's like on cruise control, just going through life. And this is the church that we find. It's in cruise control and it's just meandering through, not realizing where we're at, at the crossroads of earth's history. And let me just be honest. This church, out of all the seven churches, is the worst. I mean, we can flatter ourselves and think that we're good. We can come to church, we can put a face on and say, happy Sabbath. But if I read my Bible correctly, Laodicea is the most putrid church out of all more. And do you want to know why? It's so bad that what does it make Jesus want to do? It makes him gag. That's confronting, isn't it? That is confronting language from Jesus himself. And I pray that today as we jump into this study and as we look at the church in Revelation here, it's going to be challenging, but we need to be challenged. Because if you're not challenged, you're never going to change. And Jesus loves you too much to leave you where you are. 
So before we jump into the message today, let's just have a quick word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning and we pray for your spirit. You've been here already this morning and you've spoken to us via testimony through song, uh, through worship. You've been here. But we ask that you may give us a double portion today. That, Father, we may be able to identify with this message. It's not a problem with everyone else, but rather it's a problem with me. Father, I ask and pray today that you may give us hearts that are ready and willing to accept that which you have. Father, I pray that you may anoint our eyes, that we may see our true condition, and that, Father, that you may speak in spite of me, that you may use the frailty that I am, and that Jesus may be put in his right place. Is the prayer that I ask and pray in his precious name. Amen. Um, who likes to be challenged? Who likes a friend that will tell you what's up? You know, I just want to give you a scenario. Let's just say that you've just had um, a, a big salad of tabbouleh. You know that there's a lot of parsley in tabbouleh. And when you eat parsley, what tends to happen? It gets stuck everywhere. So you've eaten a big salad of tabbouleh, and then you're talking to your friend, and you're talking to your friend for about half an hour, and your friend says nothing. But you're wondering why they keep looking down at you your mouth. Regardless of that, you finish your conversation, you say, I need to duck off, I'm going to work. So you go to work for eight hours, and throughout your, your day at work, you're noticing that people keep on looking at your mouth. Let's just say it's not work, let's just say that you're going for a job interview. Or let's just say you're going on a date. And your friend has talked to you for half an hour. They haven't said a thing. So you go to that appointment, you go to that interview, you go to that, 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 the workplace, or you go on that date or whatever it is, and you sit in that place, and they keep looking at your mouth, and then when you get home, you want to check, is there something wrong with my mouth? And you look into the mirror, and what do you see? It's just parsley. It's like the veggie garden. It's just overgrown, you know, just exaggerating this story. What would you think of your friend? Because you remember that your friend talked to you right after the incident occurred that you ate that tabbouleh. And they should have told me what was up, but they didn't. Jesus tells us what's up because he's the true and faithful witness, is he not? Open up to Revelation chapter 3 with me, and I'm going to read these words of Jesus himself. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. This is what the scripture says. It says, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. In other words, listen to what I'm about to say because I am trustworthy in my judgments and in my advice. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. And the word there in the Greek, it's just literally meaning you are neither boiling hot or icy cold. You're neither of those. I wish that you were cold or hot. I wish that you were one of the other. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. These are the words of Jesus. 
They're not the words of, of Ashley. Right here in the text, Jesus says, you think that you are rich. You think that you are increased with goods, but you are poor, you are blind, you are miserable, and you are naked, and you know it not. What intrigues me with these passages is that the pendulum just can swing in our Christian experience. There's moments where we're boiling hot and on fire for God. Or the pendulum swings the other way and we're freezing cold. We're cold and we're indifferent to God. But Jesus isn't talking about either of those conditions. He says we're smack bang in the middle. You're lukewarm and you're staying lukewarm. You're not changing. You're just existing. The church is just existing. It's not advancing. It's not growing. It's not you know, promoting the goodness of Jesus. It's not meeting the needs of society. It is just existing. You know, um, the problem with Laodicea is very, very obvious to us. It's lukewarm. When I went to Mexico in 2011 on a mission trip, that's me in Mexico. Legit, that is actually me in Mexico. It's not my hat. I had never experienced heat like it before. I've been to Darwin. I've been to Bali. And I thought that Mexico was going to be fine because I was an Aussie kid. I was going with a bunch of Americans and I thought they were soft when they were telling me that it's going to be really hot there. I'm like, oh man, I'm an Aussie. I know what heat's all about. We turn up to Mexico, the middle of Mexico, like just in the middle of nowhere. It was the hottest place on earth that I have ever been in my life and we were there for a month. It was so hot, guys that you would get your water bottle, you would put it inside. This is in the house, on the table, and the water bottle was cold when you put it there. You'd walk away for a couple of hours, you'd go and pick your water bottle up, and it was like it's been in the car on a hot summer's day. And you couldn't escape it. For something to be hot, it had to be cold. And for something to be lukewarm, it had to be at one time hot. So the church has been on fire for God, but then it has waned as time has progressed. And this is the problem that God has with his church. Look at what it says here in the text. It says in verse 17, You do not know that you were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Poor. Jesus saying you are you like a beggar. That's what he's literally saying. You have nothing. You are so destitute. He then says that you are blind. In other words, you can't see. And then he says that you are also naked. Naked in the ancient world was absolute shame. So not only is it a church that is destitute and is poor, we're not talking financially here, but we're talking spiritually poor. But this is a church that is shameful to him. Not covered in the righteousness of Jesus, which we're going to have a look at soon. But worse out of all of them is that it is blind. It is completely indifferent to its problems. It doesn't know, not because it doesn't know, but because it doesn't want to know. I mean, you can deceive yourself and tell yourself that you were rich when you were poor. You can deceive yourself very easily. You can deceive yourself and think that you have clothes on and go to the shopping center. You just be called mad. But the person who is blind and says that they can see, if they claim that, they would be considered foolish. Ignorance. There's many people in ignorance, and there's no problem with that. But chosen ignorance is different. Willful ignorance is the problem with this church. It knows what's up. 
It knows the problem, but it chooses to do nothing about it. Would you say that this church has a problem? It is a church that is unaware of its problem. Not because it's not there in front of it, because it just doesn't want to see it. It's closed its eyes. If the church, friends, is unaware of its need before God, if the church is unaware of its spiritual need and its absolute dependency upon Jesus, don't miss this, then the church will never meet the needs of the community. If the church is spiritually lukewarm, then it has nothing to give. You know, there should be a hundred conversions for where there is now one. God has not changed. The same power that attended the apostolic movement as the message went out and hundreds came to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Well, why don't we see that today in the Western world? Yes, we could say prosperity has intoxicated people, but it's more than that. It's so easy to point the blames at society today. I think that the blame needs to be cast square upon the church of God, upon me and upon us. It's so easy to pass the buck, isn't it? You know, um, when I was interested in Rosie, I told her I was going to share this story. All my best illustrations involve my wife. When I was interested in Rosie, a good friend of mine, a good mentor of mine, he didn't know Rosie. And he was a little bit concerned because he didn't know Rosie. And he called me up like a good friend would. If you had a bit of parsley in your mouth. And he said, okay, Ashley, let's have a chat. So he called me up and he had a chat to me. And this, is, this guy's a straight shooter. And he had a chat to me. He says, so Ashley, I hear that there's some word on the street that there's a young lady that you're interested in. I'm like, yeah, there is. There is. Nice observation living down in Newcastle. You know, <laughs> who's told you this? You know, it's funny how people just talk. Talk and talk and talk and talk. So he's just wanting to get his finger on the pulse and just see what's happening here. So he calls me and says, so, you know, Ashley, you're interested in this girl. And the conversation progresses, you know, and I share with him, you know, that nothing's happened yet, you know. We're just taking things slow, etc., etc. And he was happy with those answers, but then he thought that he would, he would stump me on this next question. And the question was, so Ashley, are you ready for marriage? Now, I had thought about that um, because I had come to the, the opinion, the conviction in my own heart, if I wasn't ready to marry, then I probably wasn't ready to date. Because what's the point of winning someone's affections and emotions if you're not ready to make that ultimate step, you know what I mean? And not that I followed that advice when I was younger either, you know, as a teenage boy. But I remember I gave him the answer, yes. I was 100% persuaded that I was ready. And then this was his trump card. He's like, so what makes you sure? What makes you so sure that you're ready? And it's like one of those moments where God just gives you the right answer because this man was it's very very difficult to give him the right answer Alex probably knows who it is I said I'm willing to take responsibility he's like well yeah conversation ended essentially because isn't that what it is I was willing to take responsibility for my choices for my future and for her future because that's what a man does He takes responsibility. It's very, very easy to make excuses and point the finger at everyone else. But what if all those fingers are pointed straight back on you? A man owns it. A man cops it. And a man or a woman of God will do the same. 
The responsibility here isn't upon parliament. The responsibility here isn't upon the disinterestedness interestedness of the community. The problem here and the responsibility here lies supremely and plainly upon who? God's church. Us. You. So what about this church? What about Mwulumba Seventh-day Adventist Church? Are we rich? Do we think that we're increased with goods? Or are we poor, wretched, blind, miserable, naked? And I don't want you to be thinking right now, yeah, that person sitting in the front row seat, they need to hear this message. They preach it, Ashley, for them. No, 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 no. This message is for me and this message is for you. Not anyone else. Move anyone else out of the room. It's just you and God, and I want you to do some soul-searching today. What about this church in Mwulumba, and more so, what about you? Where do you stand? Is Christianity uh, a religion of convenience to you, or rather, is it a religion of conviction? Is Jesus everything to you? Or are there idols? Is there like this hierarchy in your life, and you know that God's a few notches down, and there's something that's more important? I mean, what is more important to us is that in which we have supreme desire and affection towards. And if it's not Jesus, what else will it be? Our hearts long for many lovers. And you look at the ancient Israelites, they had many lovers. They had Baal and Asherah and and, and Molech and all these different gods. And we think, man, I'm glad I'm not like them. But are we any different? We have just... Basically what we've done, we've just created this self-denial where we think that we're better than them, but, you know, we run to sport or we run to shopping. And, and those things aren't bad in and of themselves. But when they take preeminence from God and when they climb up that ladder and they replace God, that's when the problem lies. The question I want to have for you, church, is this this morning because that's It's difficult. Is there a solution to this? Is there a solution for the worst church in the Christian dispensation? With Jesus, yes. With Jesus, the answer is always yes. Look at what he says in verse 18. He says these words. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. The question I want to ask you this morning, church, is who is responsible for revival? Who's responsible? God is responsible. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11, it says, If you, being evil, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God is the source of revival, yes. But God's not going to drag you along with revival, kicking or screaming against your will. I think sometimes we put all the onus on God, and yes, he will pour out his spirit, and revival is solely dependent upon him and looking to him. But if the church won't look to him, then revival, at some point, the church needs to take ownership there and say, you know what, we're not praying as we should. We're not seeking God as we should. There are idols in my life that are really, you know, they just taken number one place. 
You know, why would God give good gifts to his children if his children are already so spoiled? I mean, you think about it. We're rich. We're increased with goods. We know the truth. We have the truth. We proclaim the truth. We love Jesus. We're so spoiled, aren't we? And we come here on Sabbath morning, we sit in our pews and we listen to the message and we sing the songs and we should do that. But if that's all that we do, then we've just bought into the consumeristic society that's around us and Christianity becomes about me and about what I get. And why would God spoil his children more? A good father won't spoil. I think many people, they want to see God as a grandfather who's just like, you know, gives gifts. Here's some lollies, kids. Here's some toys. So you just feed them up on the lollies and give them back to their parents. Or the kid does something naughty, give them back to the parents and the parents discipline. But God's a father. Don't forget that. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. He says there's three things. There's gold, there's garments, and there's sight, and they can all be yours. In the midst of Laodicea, you can be rich in God, you can be clothed in God, and you can see God and forever have him before you. So when it says, I want to give you gold, what's it talking about? Three problems there, poor, naked, blind. Look at what Jesus, actually, no, I skipped that. Here, Three solutions. You only see two on the screen just here. They're poor. Jesus says, I want to give you gold. They're naked. Jesus says, I want to give you some garments. They're blind. Jesus says, I want to be able to make you see again. So Jesus' solutions are the solutions to the problems that the church has found itself in. Have a look at this. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter, 1 Peter chapter, 5, chapter 1 and verse 17. We're talking about the gold just here. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse... 17. Actually, verse 7. 1 Peter 1, 7. This is what the scripture says. Actually, let's read verse 6 as well because verse 6 really links into this. We're talking about the gold and what does the gold represent. In verse 6 it says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. What has the church been grieved by? Trials. Are trials good or bad? They're bad, but can they also be good? Okay? If you allow your circumstances to master you, then your trials are bad. But through the grace of God, you master your circumstances, are trials good? They can be good, and they can be turned into a positive. In verse 7, it says this. You're going through trials. In verse 7, it says, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by what? By fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We all like a good, warm fire on a cold night, don't we? But we don't like to get too close to that fire because it hurts. And trials will hurt, but Jesus knows that the only way for us to get to where he wants us to be is to lead us through the storm. We're trying to go around it. We're trying to stay where we are. And when we stay where we are or we try to circumnavigate God, what happens is we fall into this pit of spiritual lethargy. Jesus says, go forward through the trial because when you go through the trial, he refines your faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their trial threw them into the fiery furnace. 
Do you reckon that improved their faith as they look back on that experience? Noah, he built the ark. 120 years he preached. 120 years he was ridiculed. When he hopped on that ark and the flood came and the rains came, do you think it confirmed his faith and made his faith stronger? If you are constantly avoiding trials or things that upset yourself, then you're never going to grow. Jesus wants you to get gold from him, refined in the fire. He doesn't want you to be avoiding the troubles of this world. But he says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world and we can do it together. The church has become so comfortable. You know, the thing is, guys, you don't have to go looking for a trial. You don't have to say, man, I'm gonna, man, I need to get some trials today. Well, I'm going to do something that creates a bit of a trial. No, trials will come to you. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. It's a reality that will come your way. You notice how Jesus doesn't say, and the solution for the church is love. Love is an important part of it. You know, I find it really interesting, you know, that... You know, C.S. Lewis, in, in one of his writings, he was, um, there was this poem, and the poem was titled, Love is Enough. Do you know what he wrote at the bottom of it? It isn't. You know, we're not talking about the agape love that God has for us. We're talking about the superficial love of this world. Faith that works through love. That's what's being talked about here, the reality of God's love. God loves you, yes. But I think he's communicated that enough. And the love that I see in the passages of scriptures here is as many as I love, I do what? God's love is manifested in many different ways. And I think what we do is we take our human, false, fallen concept of love and we apply it to God and we make a God after another image. It's idolatry. But God rebukes and chases those in whom he loves because he wants you to become better, because he wants you to become more, because you're the object of his supreme desire. He says, I want to give you gold, but he also says, I want to give you garments. In the Bible, the symbol of a garment, what does it communicate? When the prodigal son comes home and the father puts the garment on him, what does that communicate to us? Whose righteousness? Jesus' righteousness. Now, If you have Jesus' righteousness, what does that mean about your spiritual condition? What's a word we would use for that? Would you be perfectly content to say you're saved if you have Jesus' righteousness? Yeah? If you have Jesus' righteousness, you are saved. And only if you have Jesus' righteousness, you are saved. Is the church wearing any clothes? Is the church covered in the righteousness of Jesus? Now, this is challenging, and it's meant to be so. What does that tell you about the church? It's not where it should be. Definitely not where it should be. If the robe of righteousness that Jesus gives to the most unworthy of sinners is on offer to all of us, free in him, and the church isn't robed in that, then the church is a long, long way from where it needs to be. It's saying that there are people in the church that think that they're robed in the righteousness of Jesus, but they're not. In other words, they're not saved. I found this challenging when I was looking at the text just here. The question is, what does salvation look like? Is salvation something that I practice when I come to church and sit in the pews and sing the song? 
or is salvation something that reaches out? Jump with me to the book of Job. I want to show you something really interesting. Job chapter 29. This has been a growing conviction on my heart. Job chapter 29. This is Job talking about his experience. Chapter 29 and verse 12. Look at what he says. He says, Because I delivered the poor who cried out, the fatherless and the one who had no helper, the blessing of a perishing man came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. In other words, because I was a blessing to those who were poor and in need, I experienced a blessing myself. Verse 14 is a key verse. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, and I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and I searched out the case that I did not know. Job is saying this, when I have received the salvation that comes from God, I will always reach out. I help the poor, the afflicted, and those who are in need. I was the sight to those who were blind, and I received the righteousness of Christ because salvation always acts. Oh, I had that all on the screen. He says, I put on my righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Righteousness moves, church. Righteousness isn't just for you, but it is for everyone else. Salvation is never stationary, and it's not all about you. It's not all about us. It's about those people out there. I have been so convicted when we sit in meetings. (laughs) And Eunice says, if Jesus came to Mwoolamba, where would he go? Who's heard her say that? Who's been convicted by that? If Jesus came to this place, who would he hang out with? Would Jesus' righteousness be kept to himself or would he extend it to the poor, to the needy, to those who are blind? God's church needs to reach out because salvation is never about me. Salvation that is all about me is salvation that really hasn't been received. Or salvation isn't lived then it's never really been experienced. Because when you have God's heart, it will always reach out. Not with hands to grasp or to hold or to pull in for one's own self or one's own benefit, but hands extended to give and to bless and to be sight for the blind, to be clothes for the naked, to be food for the hungry. That's the reality of the church. It's rich. It's increased with good. We hoard up that which we have, but Jesus gave liberally. Freely you have received, freely give, not just financially. But spiritually, church, do we have a message to give? Do we have a message to the dying world? Do we live that message? I mean, we can go out and we can preach and we teach and we must do that because Jesus went to proclaim liberty to the captives. He preached the gospel. But Jesus also healed the sick. Jesus also helped those who were in need. They go together. Salvation always reaches outwards. Always. You know, that's why it says in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 8, it says, 
the bride was clothed in white linen and it was the righteous acts of the saints as they blessed humanity. I mean, what, what kind of message, what kind of power does that give to your message if you're giving food to the hungry and you're helping those who are in need? You practice what you preach. Man, I'm so convicted because I don't do that. I don't do that. Jesus says he also wants to give us sight. Why? Because we're blind. We choose willful ignorance. We would rather pretend that everything's all right than be confronted with the reality that there is parsley all over our teeth. You may not see it. If someone has parsley all over their teeth and it's just a constant reality, you're soon going to forget to realize that that's weird. That's just who they are. You probably have some nicknames for them, parsley man or something like that, but that's who they are. And you're not going to challenge it because that's just who they are. But when they go out into this community, do you reckon the community would see it? <laughs> they can see it better than what we can. We come to church, we sit down, we listen. We should do that, absolutely. But we can become so immune to our own condition that people can see it a mile off. But we just think that everything's fine and we will continue on. You know, things are going to change. We're told that they will change. And they'll change either with you or without you. You know, whether it's finger pointing at everyone else, really, when I read Revelation chapter 3, the finger is pointed squarely at me. Squarely at me. And Jesus says, I want to give you sight. Because the easiest person to deceive is yourself. You know, we're so quick to pray, get down on our knees and say, Lord... Open their eyes. When was the last time you prayed, Lord, open mine? When was the last time you got on your knees and said, Lord, open mine? It's a challenging message, isn't it? I had a good friend of mine who was going through the Conflict of Ages series, starting with Patriarchs and Prophets and finishing all the way up to the end of Great Controversy. Now, reading through it, and they read through a number of the books and they got to Christ's Objects Lessons. Who, who's read that book? And they said these words to me. Man, I don't know if I can read this, Ashley. I'm so convicted. Do you know what I said to them? I said, yeah, it's because they're Jesus' sermons. Would you expect anything less? When Jesus preached, he wasn't some whimsy preacher that was preaching unicorns and butterflies. Feel good, feel good. But I mean, when you read some of Jesus' parables, they're tough. Why? Because Jesus says what needs to be said. Because it needs to be said. You know, um, pride does two things. Pride blinds our eyes and pride shuts our heart. And it's safe, so we think. The solutions for God's church when it was poor, God says, I want you to be spiritually rich. I want you to have a faith that is refined in the fire. You know, no wonder the church, when it was persecuted, it was a church that was thriving and growing because their faith was being refined in the fire. He says, you are naked. Well, you need garments. You need salvation. He says, you are blind. You need eye salve that you may be able to see. Desire of Ages, page 300. Look what it says. I love this statement. It says, the proud heart strives to earn salvation, but both our title to heaven and our fitness for it are found in what? The righteousness of Christ. Now listen to this point. This, we're talking about revival earlier on. The Lord can do how much? Nothing. His hands are tied. 
He can do nothing towards the recovery of man until convinced of his own weakness and stripped of all his self-sufficiency, he yields himself to the control of God. Isn't that just an apt description of Laodicea? A church that is convinced that everything is all right. A church that is self-sufficient and a church that hasn't yielded full control to God is a church that God just can't help. Because if you're prideful, it blinds your eyes, and if you're prideful, it shuts your heart up against God's blessings. I feel like that's, an, that's, that's, an, that's a clear description of where we are. That's a clear description of where I am. So the question is, revival, is it possible I want to let you know this morning there is hope for this church. The worst church throughout the seven churches is a church that's given the best promise. It's given the best promise. Turn with me back to Revelation chapter 3. I want to read these texts. And just as the other texts were convicting and confronting, so these final three verses endear us towards the heart of God as we see what he wants to do for us to fix this problem. In verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Wow. I mean, out of all the promises Jesus gives his churches throughout you know, the, the seven dispensations, this is the best because you sit on the throne with Jesus. Like, it's huge. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The greatest sin to overcome, church, is not spiritual death. It's not lovelessness. It's not, um, it's not corruption. It's not compromise. The greatest sin is a battle with self. The greatest sin is a heart of pride because you just don't see it. But you know what Jesus says here? He says, you can overcome because I've overcome. You can sit on my throne because I endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of heaven. It is possible for you in and only in and only through Jesus you sitting here today thinking, man, my case is terrible. My salvation is all inward, inward. It's all about me. When Jesus comes in and when Jesus lives on the throne of your heart, it extends out and he brings about the change. Stop picking off the dead fruit. The problem's with the roots. If Jesus is your focus, things will change. And Jesus here is promising intimacy, isn't he? He says, I want to come in and I want to have a meal with you. You only have meals with those in whom you like. You only invite to your party the people whom you want to be there. Jesus says, I'm knocking, I'm waiting, and I want to come in and I want to fellowship with you. I want to sit down with you. I want to have a meal with you. When I was in Tasmania in 2013, I went with a good friend of mine and we thought that we would just wing everything when we went there. So we, we didn't even have a plan of where we wanted to be, when we wanted to be. We had some ideas of things we wanted to see. But we landed in Hobart and we thought that we would find some accommodation for the night. Little did we realise that we landed like 3 o'clock in the afternoon and there wasn't 
March accommodation. So I was panicking because I was thinking, we have a little Nissan Micra and it's not going to be comfortable in this little car. He snores really badly. It's going to be really terrible. So we're looking around, calling up these hotels, hostels, you know, whatever it was. Well, not hotels, motels. We couldn't find anything. And then I realized I have a good friend who lives in Tasmania. He lives in Hobart. So I called him up and said, hey, um, Bubs, Dramone, um, we're in Hobart and we have nowhere to stay. I know this is late notice, but man, could you help us out? He's just like, absolutely. Because a friend always opens his door. And I came to, to, to his house and he opened the door. He says, man, you know, the food is on the stove. I've emptied my bedroom. You know, you're sleeping in my bed. I'm going to sleep on the couch. Just blessing after blessing after blessing. I felt like I put him out and I was like, I'm so sorry, man. I'm so sorry. It's just like, man, what are you apologizing for? You don't need to apologize. You know, a friend invites a friend. There is nothing stopping a friend inviting another friend to that friend's home. Nothing. And if Jesus is knocking, isn't he the best of friends? Isn't he the greatest of friends? Why would we say no? Why would we refuse him? Be like, oh, sorry, Jesus, the house is in a mess. I need to get the house cleaned up. And then you can come in. Just wait outside a little bit. Jesus says, yeah, I know it's a mess. I see it already. I see the things even you don't see. And trust me, it's not very good. But regardless of that, I want to come in. Because I want you. He doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't want your achievements. He doesn't want your resume. He doesn't want any of those things. He wants you. Why would you deprive the Lord of heaven of the greatest object of his desire, which is your salvation? Trust me, when you get to heaven and you look back at the things that happen on earth, you will try to bring up the terrible things that happen in life. And you may be able to remember bits and pieces But the glory of heaven and the goodness of God and the presence of God will outshine the darkest moments of your life. They really will. Heaven is cheap enough, guys. Why would we think that we're rich and increased with goods when really the only rich, the only treasure that we have is our beautiful Savior? Lord, forgive us. Lord, have mercy upon us. And shine your face upon us. As we close this message, I just want to read to you some scriptures. I want you to open your eyes, or close your eyes. Probably close, it's better than open. As I read these scriptures, you may know where this is from. God says this to you. Not anyone else in church today. You. Now therefore, says the Lord, Lord, turn to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Surrender your hearts and not your garments. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep before the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach. That the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? 
and it shall come to pass afterward, not before, afterwards, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see dreams and your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, no one's missed out. I will pour out my spirit in those days and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Jesus is the answer, church. Jesus is in the fire. Jesus is amongst those who are in need. And Jesus is the one in whom we are to look to who anoints our eyes with ourselves so that we can see. There's only been one answer, and there is only one solution for us, for pride, and that solution has always been Jesus. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, your word's clear enough to us. And Father, I know that conviction comes because your word is like a sharp two-edged sword. We thank you for that. Because if we didn't have it, we would be so rudderless in this life. But Father, just when we need your message, we thank you that it comes and that the good news really is only as good as the bad news is bad. So Father, if this news that we've just looked at from the book of Revelation about the final church before Jesus comes is terrible and the worst out of them all, then it means that the news, the good news that comes from that is the best news. And we thank you that your news, the good news, the promises from your hands never fail. Father, I pray for every single individual in this church individually because Jesus knocks at the door of all of our hearts. Father, I ask and pray that you may come in, that you may dine with us, that you may live with us, that you may fellowship with us. Father, I ask and pray corporately for a church. Give us wisdom as to how we can show how we can be the hands and feet of Jesus. Father, we have no idea what we're doing. And we admit that, Father. We can think of programs and strategies and plans, but Father, may they be your programs, strategies and plans. And Father, may the primary work that is engaged in by this church be the work and ministry of prayer. May we weep between the porch and the altar. May you breathe upon us again. I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at the number 3abnaustralia all one word Our postal address is 3ABN Australia, Inc. P.O. Box 752, 
Morissette, New South Wales, 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support.
The pianist was Henry Higgins and the song was Abide With Me.